The DeFalco Files is an entertainment-based program. Some memories of certain events might be fuzzy. All opinions are that of the host. Content might not be appropriate for children and some adults. Listener discretion is advised. And remember, the truth is here. Vegas Bad Boys of Podcasting presents The DeFalco Files with FSW owner Joe DeFalco and your host, Matt Michaels. Hey everybody, it's Matt Michaels and welcome to The DeFalco Files with the creator, producer, and day-to-day operator of Future Stars Wrestling, Mr. Joe DeFalco. How you doing, Joe? Oh, I'm doing wonderful, even though you left out owner and uh, pl- play-by-play announcer and part-time <laughs> ring announcer, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, the one thing that's missing there is, I mean, we can we can almost say on-air talent in terms of being uh, around the ring, but the one thing I still want to see is Joe DeFalco in a steel cage match. Winning the FSW Heavyweight Wait, Championship, <laughs> that could happen anytime. <laughs> We'll let uh, we'll let little Joey uh, book, and then uh, we put the oh, bell yeah. on you. <laughs> we'll be out of business in six months. <laughs> so, Joe, today we're gonna kind of focus on business and kind of how you got uh, into owning um, FSW, as well as how today's events in the world are affecting how businesses operate, especially small businesses like wrestling promotions in uh, the region and the first thing i want to start with is when you were growing up what was your view on pro wrestling and when you were a kid did you ever think of you know that idea that you're going to get into wrestling in any way no, not really. You know, when I was young, I loved wrestling. I remember staying up at midnight on WOR in New York watching Bruno San Martino. So I probably I was born in 65. So 74 ish, probably nine years old. I was going to the Nassau Coliseum to see live wrestling. You know, I always tell the story to Kevin Sullivan because he was wrestling Ernie Ladd at the show. <laughs> And it was at the Nassau Coliseum. I don't even really remember Bruno wrestling or who he wrestled, but I just always remember the Kevin Sullivan match with Ernie Ladd. And growing up, uh, my great-grandmother was a huge wrestling fan. She only spoke Spanish, so when I'd go over her house, she'd watch it on the uh, UHF with the rabbit ears, and she would watch wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium and it was Lucha Libre, you know, I'm, I'm Spanish. I don't speak a lot of it. My mother's Spanish. My father's Italian. And <laughs> she would watch it and I would be there. And Chavo Guerrero was popular. He was like my favorite guy then. It was Terry Funk and Roddy Piper and Johnny Rods wrestled as an Egyptian guy named Java Rook. And at 10 years old, I had no idea why this guy that I watched in WWWF was on this show with a different name. And, it was, you know, and growing up, I was always a big fan. And so probably Bob Backlund became the champ. I kind of drifted away. You get older in your teens, whatever. And then I'm pretty sure about WrestleMania two, I started kind of 
noticing things in WrestleMania three, I was, you know, full blown back into it and, you know, would watch every pay-per-view had the cheater boxes, you know, <laughs> scored yeah. them free, was very excited. And, you know, just remember watching some of the, the biggest shows in, in the history of wrestling growing up. You know, that's funny. You mentioned that kids, if you are listening and you're under the age of about 35, you'll have no idea because you can just go to the internet now and find a streaming service that's, you know, pirating and giving it to free. But we had to get little black boxes. And if you had a friend who had one of those, it, they were like the king of the kingdom. I used to sell them for two fifty a pop. I used to have yeah. some. It was a good little business. Then it progressed to Direct TV. They had the little cards. Guy I knew hooked me up. There was a <laughs> card reader you had to buy for like two hundred, and every couple of weeks you'd have to redo it until the technology got so good that you couldn't uh, yeah. you couldn't steal it anymore. <laughs> oh. But I would ne- I would never recommend anybody stealing now, especially since I'm in the wrestling business. <laughs> but, but when you're a twelve year old kid, your parents aren't going to pay fifty bucks. Yeah, to watch every pay per view. You know, I used to watch the weekly TNAs. You know, through the yeah. cheater box. You know, who was paying ten bucks a month to see the dups? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's a very um, interesting kind of uh, area to look at in terms of. Here's a company that thought ten dollars was going to, and it wasn't it like it wasn't even ten dollars a month. It was ten dollars weekly, wasn't it? Yeah, weekly pay per view, yeah. and you know the flying Elvises, and yeah, you know. You know, I liked our truth when he was there, and yep. you know, I was like, wow, the, you know, they Sonny Siaki, they had some good people there, but it was again, it, it was a flawed concept at the time. You know, it, it's amazing that the way the pay per views were set up, I can't believe they'd get that many buys. A from people who had the cheater boxes, yeah. and B from the fact that it was a lot of unknown talent. So how do you get people to spend forty dollars a month? to watch unknown talent other than like Ken Shamrock was there and, you know, X-Pac, but it, it was just a, it was a difficult sell. Yeah. And of course the, I guess at that point, the biggest name would have been Jeff Jarrett and he made sure you knew he was the biggest name. Yeah. You know, at this point I forgot all about Jarrett because <laughs> I was thinking Shamrock, he ended up yep. winning the title first, yep. you know, and it Raven, but, Again, it's like a lot of the upstarts that try to get going after WCW went belly up. Right. That even with the early TNA, it was it's just difficult to get the fan base. Like even AEW, it's like AEW's come out. They've sold some big shows. But if you look at their ratings, their ratings aren't as good as TNA used to be when they had a good time slot. T- yeah. TNA used to do nine nine hundred thousand a week. While AEW is struggling to beat NXT, which technically is the WWE's third-rate show. Yeah. Well, with that sense, you know, that kind of ties into a little bit of the business aspect and, and what, you know, the big companies are looking at. Did you go to college for a business degree, or what did you study when you were... No, I I went to a community college, and the first day I was there, they had a college radio station, (laughs) and I went to the college radio station. I became the music director. Uh, By the second semester, I guess, 
I was barely taking any classes and I was hanging out six, eight hours a day at the college radio station. Uh, Paul Heyman came in. We actually used to talk wrestling. So this was probably 1983, 84, where he was working like as a ring crew guy whenever WWF was in the uh, Westchester County Center, which was in White Plains. And my uh, college was in Valhalla, so it was about 10 minutes away. And Paul grew up in Scarsdale, so that was, you know, 15 minutes away. Wow. Did you ever get a chance, uh, you know, being that you were so close, to visit the uh, Heyman Complex and, you know, see the infamous basement that would become famous? No, because, you know, he was at the he hung out at the radio station a little bit. Maybe he was there six months, whatever. But I remember many years later. Now, I'm <laughs> saying many years, probably maybe 10 where I'm watching, there was a show, I think it was like Pro Wrestling This Week or something with Joe Pettacino. It was like a syndicated wrestling show. And I had heard the name Paulie dangerously, but I had no concept of who that was. Hey, yeah, he manages the Midnight Express. Great. Well, this show is like, hey, we have live Paulie dangerously with the Midnight Express. And I was like, holy shit, that's Paul Heyman. <laughs> Like, you know, I never knew. And I think at that point he was doing stuff with like Windy City Wrestling in Chicago. Yeah. But this was before he was in WCW. So I had known the name because I used to get the wrestler and and, and the, the the pro wrestling magazines. There was the two of them that were really popular. You'd get yeah. them every single month. Yep. Which is very interesting that you brought up Windy City Wrestling because I was about... 13 or 14 around somewhere around 87 88 when um i started realizing there was a, such a thing as windy city wrestling in chicago so we would go to some of the local events and that's where i first was introduced to paul Heyman, and i totally forgot about that until you mentioned that that that's what he was doing before he went to wcw and that's that's amazing did you ever sense that he like that was his drive and that's where he was headed into pro wrestling no because we basically just talked a little bit of wrestling and at that point he was talking about how he was doing work with it and i was probably gotten back into it because in 83 84 i was probably about 19 so i was probably 17 years old or so when i really started getting back into the wrestling so he wasn't there that much I just remember having the conversation with him and then later on just being shocked <laughs> that that guy, Paul Heyman, was the manager of the stars, Paulie Dangerously. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's interesting because, you know, here's the manager of the stars. And now we have the uh, the owner of the future stars. What yes. what was it like for you in terms of. You are now, you know, at a radio station in college. It's a community college. You're finding that you're spending more time focusing on that. Did you have any direction at that point in what you exactly wanted to do? Or were you taking the next few years to find where things were clicking? I went to the community college probably for four or five years, never graduated, probably wasn't even close because of the classes. If I didn't like it, I just didn't go anymore. I didn't drop out. Right. But, but being at the radio station and learning how to DJ, 
I had some friends and they, some of them worked at a radio station, but what others did was on the weekends, they'd go DJ at nightclubs. And there was a guy who had a service where he would supply DJs and they would give him a contract and probably pay him, say, a hundred bucks a night. Well, the guy would give us 50, 60 bucks a night. So he has five, six, seven places. He's making 50, 75 bucks each from all these places that are paying him, you know, six, seven days a week to DJ in the clubs. Okay. And after he owed me money for a while and then he kind of went belly up, disappeared, whatever. I always remember Jim Derbyshire was his name. <laughs> and. I was working in a club up in uh, Connecticut, which was about an hour drive, and I became friendly with the guy who ran it, and he wasn't around, so they paid me. I was like, hey, I don't work for this guy anymore. You want to pay me? I'll be your DJ. And they paid me, and then they opened up another club, and then they paid me like you know a couple of hundred dollars Wow, for, for two clubs, and I would DJ at one, and I would, I would have other DJs that I met, became friends with. And we'd pay them, you know, 80 bucks, 100 bucks. So, you know, I was living large at my house with my uh, mom and dad. And I was making, you know, grand a week, 1200 a week, just from DJing in nightclubs four or five hours a day. It was, it was a great gig. Wow. And that was at the kind of the last, I'd say, apex of what clubs were, you know, from the, the 70s and the 80s. Well, yeah, this was more. Yeah, this was the late '80s because I was playing a lot of the uh, the freestyle Miami, you know, the yeah. Cover Girls, TKA, all all the Latin freestyle stuff, and we'd have. And then I'd book the live track acts there, so you know, I was pretty hands on. So I wasn't. They weren't just paying me to be the DJ. I was booking the talent wow. and doing all that other stuff. So, um, was there any instances of? Um just you know club craziness was there a lot of the um shall we say uh nose tooting going on in the club were you aware of you know just the debauchery that was nightclub life yeah well you know you're growing <laughs> up in your 20s and you're meeting people and you know i was never a drinker so a lot of my boys you know we play pool afterwards or whatever go hang out go eat at the diner but you know i'd watch everybody else get drunk whether as yeah. they were you know, people come into this, come in there or the bartenders getting drunk, you know, after uh, the place closed down. Because in Connecticut, you were only allowed to stay open till probably like, you know, two in the morning on weekends and like one on the weekdays. Wow. So, you know, you started at eight, nine o'clock. It was a great gig, four or five hours a day. And that was about it. At what point did you uh, get to the idea of moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. Did you spend most of your 20s on the East Coast? Or what brought uh, you this way? Actually, I was 26. And the nightclub I was working at, the same one was the one that these guys bought, was in Norwalk, Connecticut. And I was there for a couple of years, whatever. The, the club started, you know, dying. They were trying to change up the music. They didn't like the clientele. Hey, we're going to play rock music. And it's like, okay, well, we're a dance club. And you're basically <laughs> killing your business. And there was a guy I know, Tyrone, who was moving to Vegas. And he was driving out. And he knew 
you know, from my stories about how often I'd go to Atlantic City to play blackjack. And we used to take the three and a half hour ride, you know, kind of like people do from Cali now to Vegas. You know, I'd go once or twice a month and spend a couple days there and, you know, go hang out at Trump Plaza. They'd come to your room because I, you know, played enough blackjack. Used to go to fights. I remember going to a George Foreman, uh, uh, Jerry Cooney fight. Oh, that was wow. on the boardwalk and stuff like that. And he was like, hey, if you drive out with me, uh, I will uh, fly you home. So we went out there. It took like 47 hours. I, I can't believe I didn't die because, like, <laughs> we didn't sleep. Like, I remember sleeping for like one or two hours in Nebraska or something. Drove out there. A uh, girl that I used to know from there, her family lived there. We ended up hooking up. So I'm like, and then by that time, the the club went belly up and it was like, well, I'm going to stay here with her. I got no job anyway and no girl in New York. And at least I got a girl and no job in in Vegas. You know, (laughs) moved out there and two weeks later we were broken up and then I stayed. (laughs) Um, With uh, you hanging out at uh, the Trump casinos, did you ever run into him? I never did, but... uh, I was always uh, happy about the way I was treated there. I I was always at Trump Plaza because, you know, they were always good at comping people. And I didn't go there with $10,000. I'd go there, you know, 500 bucks sometimes, you know. Right. You lose 600, you win 250. But they took care of players back then, kind of like Vegas was for a while until they decided it became too corporate and, you know, they don't want to take care of their local people. Yeah, exactly. Um, so speaking of local, then you become local. What did you do to make ends meet when you found uh, yourself, you know, here with no, no girlfriend, no job. <laughs> right. So what happened was, uh, she knew some people and she got me a name for a guy. They were hiring at Cheetahs okay, strip yeah. club. And again, I I was a DJ since 91. So I've been DJing for eight years, never DJed in that atmosphere. So I went in there. It was crazy because the the head DJ happened to be good friends with one of the guys who DJed at my place in New York at my college. And this guy was from Texas because the guy I knew went down to Texas for a job. So I got hired beforehand. I was working like as a bar porter at the Santa Fe Casino, and, <laughs> and the bar porter is basically the bar back because the bar back's really the bartender, and the bartender is just the guy who collects the money. Yeah. So I, so <laughs> I didn't get the tips. The bar back got, oh, the, you know, got some of his tips from the bartender, and I just got my shitty paycheck. Right. So I worked first. This was before. I worked at Cheetahs first. I got there for two days. The owner came back in town and rehired the DJ that the manager fired. So I worked two days. I made like 95 bucks and 105 bucks. And I was like, oh, this is great. 100 bucks a day. But then that was gone. So I didn't really know anything. I had to take the job as the bar porter making 200 a week or whatever. Um, And then there was a place downtown called uh, Girls of Glitter Gulch. And I went down there and talked to the... uh, security guy and he was like ah the manager says we're all filled up i'm like okay i'm from new york i'm a dj blah 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 
and talked to the manager and he was like, you know what, do me a favor, come in tomorrow, you know, somebody quits or whatever. So I ended up coming in later than I was supposed to and it turned out the DJ that was gonna work that night quit because the owner was an asshole. And they're like, oh, you wanna work tonight? And I'm like, okay. And I remember it was like a Thursday night and I walked out of there with like 200 and something bucks. Wow. And I'm like, holy shit, this is fucking great. And, you know, I was there for on and off for about nine years and, wow. and stayed DJing wow. until I got my best job, which was a Crazy Horse 2, which was, you know, an awesome gig. You know, I remember going in there and at the time there was a bartender who was best friends with uh, the Godfather and the Godfather used to work it there. So I remember when the uh, WrestleMania was at... Uh, Caesar's Palace, it was like Marty Jannetty, Macho Man, Godfather, all these wrestling guys were there. And at that point, I didn't talk to anybody. But another time when he came in, he came in with The Undertaker, and he was super cool. And we talked with him for about 20, 30 minutes. And this was before I even started doing anything with the wrestling out here. Right. You know, how I started was doing a wrestling radio show because it was popular on the Internet. You started getting the scoops doing all the other stuff. So I put in the work and I'm like, you know what? I'd like to do a wrestling radio show. And that was in 99, did the wrestling radio show. My first guest, shockingly enough, was supposed to be D'Lo Brown, who is now one of our trainers. <laughs> and because I called WWE and they were doing a show in like a month in Vegas. So they were, okay, this is my first show. And then I remember coming home and there was a message on my machine, and the guy's like, hey, we got bad news. Uh, D'Lo Brown's not going to be able to make it, but we got somebody else to call in for you. Uh, the Rock will be calling in. And it was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> so it was like, so my very first radio show, I had The Rock as my guest. Wow. And that was the perfect timing, too, because I remember 99 was right before the, like, access became even tougher with them where you know early 99 you could still get access but then as soon as the attitude era and wcw went under it just you you know it wasn't like you could get a guy like that quickly what um what station were you running on was it something KLAV. yeah cool i was paying 125 bucks a week to be on there. Wow. Uh, the the All-Star Cafe paid us, basically, we didn't get really any other sponsors, but they basically covered, you know, a once-a-week show. They paid it. I think they might have paid 600 whatever. We made $100 a month. And they would feed us whatever we wanted, which was great. We had, you know, two guys with me. And they fed us. And we had, I remember, Matt Hardy was, like, one of my other guests who called in. And then they kind of went belly up, the All-Star Cafe. Right. And at that point, the uh, Nitro Grill started right. started up. And that's where it really started to pick up because they would do uh, free signings with everybody. So I would have the opportunity. You know, I remember doing an interview and he was voted most, worth, uh, most hated wrestler. And we gave Jeff Jarrett a plaque because he was that was in his day. And we had Vampiro, and I got to interview Bret Hart and Sting and, you know, David Flair when he was with Stacey Keebler, <laughs> you know. And it was like, it was a who's who. It was everybody who went through the door. And then they started booking their uh, 
autograph signings around the radio show. So they do the signings and I'd have the guys on live sitting with me. Wow. And at that point, there was a local wrestling federation. The Buffalo Wrestling Federation lives in infamy here in this town. <laughs> Buffalo Jim named it after himself. And I became kind of friendly with some of the local guys and, you know, helped out here and there at his show, did some ring announcing, did the loop, you know, did a little color here and there. Not very often. He was doing some shows. I remember at the uh, Silver Nugget with uh, Honky Tonk Man against their champ at the time, Mike Lane. That's how I met Rush, who ended up starting his own school later on. But I saw what he did. And that was what kind of set things in place to where, you know, this guy's doing it. And I'm watching his first show that had 900 people at the Orleans uh, ballroom to the third show that had 120 people because he used people that weren't ready, didn't use really any name guys. He wanted to be the star of the show. And I'm like, man, I can do this. And I guarantee you I could do it better. And that's what kind of started things up. And then I got involved with Rush when he opened up his wrestling school. And things kind of went a little sour because the head trainer guy who used to be at uh, the Buffalo school, you know, he was trying to, you know, that was my way of getting money was trying to bring in people. We did a commercial it aired on raw. They would call up and it was my job to try to get them to sign up. But this guy would go behind my back and get the messages from the answer machine and try to get the money on the thing. And it's like, you're being paid to be a trainer. Oh, wow. So that kind of went sour. So that's when, me and a few guys put together a company called Vegas Extreme. And that might have been 99, 2000. I can't even really remember. But we did shows at Russia's school. You couldn't charge anything. Wrestling was still uh, you know, under right. jurisdiction of the Athletic Commission. Yeah. So I ended up hooking up with a guy from Arizona who is pretty well known now, Navajo Warrior, who works for WWE. And he... <laughs> He does a lot of work, but he had a, he had guys on there, which were Gallo, who we used recently, but he also had Mike Knox, and we used them on the show. And uh, one of the guys I work with, he, was, he went to developmental in Cincinnati, and there was a guy named Derek Nykirk, who ended up being one half of Heyman Security under the masks when it was initially one of the Bashams, one of them left. Derek took that spot. He went to Arizona. So we used him. We used Snooker Jr. We used Bison Smith, who was a big star in Puerto Rico and wrestled in Japan a lot. And we put together this little group of guys that ace steel, you know, that all yeah. ended up pretty much making it in the business. And the problem was you couldn't charge. The other, you know, the other uh, trainer had issues with us, didn't want his guys wrestling on our shows. So, you know, we did like two shows and that was it. And, you know, then all of a sudden, fast forward to 2009, wrestling's deregulated in, uh, in Nevada. And we put together our first show at the uh, Rancho Swap Meet of all places. <laughs> and there was a, a big back area that used to be a furniture store in the Swap Meet. And basically got it for a few hundred bucks. Wow. And we ended up getting uh, Funny Bone was supposed to wrestle on the show. Funny Bone was injured. So we had him involved in an angle because Kenny King and uh, Derek Nykirk were the final two in the tournament. 
They were the most name valued guys. Also, the Young Bucks. Some people heard of them. They worked the show against a team called the Cutler Brothers, who now Brandon Cutler, because they were best friends growing up. And they were on the show. And we had Mike Modest, who ended up initially becoming our first uh, trainer. And we drew, I think, like 230 people. And that was me putting up posters on telephone poles all over the city as much as I could. We couldn't do a commercial. We had no footage. What are we going to do? You know, and we were shocked, you know, just from the amount of people that came because of the local talent that we used, basically getting the word out and, and, you know, me hustling and grinding, you know, and in that time process, uh, my partner Rocky lived two houses down and he was trying to get involved with AAA and Conan and, you know, he had money that he wanted to invest. He was a big wrestling guy. When, you know, when uh, Nitro Grow went belly up, me and Rush bought a lot of the memorabilia, and then Rocky bought the memorabilia off us. So I knew he had money and he liked wrestling. So he became my 50-50 partner. I said, hey, I need some money to do it. I'll do all the work. You know, if you put in the money, you know, we'll do an even split. You know, we thought it was going to be fun. I mean, you know, wasn't really looking to make a living. I had a job making good money, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, after the first show, we were ready to do the next one. We had uh, Disco Inferno. We had some people booked. And then the city came in. I still believe it was uh, one of the other local guys. You know, oh, I have no, no proof of anything. But they called up. And uh, the ruling was that it was, I'm trying to get the exact term because I always laugh when, no public assembly. And I'm like, it's a SWAT meet. What do you mean? There's people. How is that no public assembly? <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't but you couldn't have people. So we ended up canceling the next show. Then we ended up making calls. We got into the Silver Nugget. You know, they charged us an arm and a leg. They charged us extra to be on the marquee. And we had uh, Snooker Jr., who we worked with, with Rush and his dad. And we brought in uh, Superfly. And we had, you know, them as the main event against Disco Inferno. And we draw really well at the... Uh, Silver Nugget. And then that was, I believe, like November or December of 2009. And then we did another show where we brought in The Godfather. And it's like, hey, it looks like we got something here. Yeah. And we brought in, you know, we started bringing in other talent. We didn't have tag teams. So we started bringing in the Reno Scum and the (laughs) Suburban Commandos and, you know, using a lot of outside talent. As a wrestling fan, Sure, we can use local guys, but if they're not good enough, as I learned with Buffalo Jim, people aren't going to just keep coming and paying their hard-earned money to see guys that aren't that good. Right. It's kind of like it's hard enough to get people because they, they look at in the independent wrestling as, a back, as backyard guys who can't make it. Right. So we had an uphill battle from day one, so I was always the guy who would be bringing in, hey – I brought in Sean Ricker, who's now Eli Drake, Brian Cage. You know, these guys were working for me in 2010 when most people had no idea who they were, but I felt these guys were stars in the making. And that's very interesting in terms of that philosophy that you saw the writing on the wall because of the fact that there was, after like 2002, 2003, somewhere around there, the independents really did get associated with backyard wrestling to the point where it kind of died out. It was so dry. 
you were well, there smart. was nothing when I did the show in 2009. I believe I was like the first locally run independent wrestling show in probably 10 years in Las Vegas. Yeah, there was a show the uh, I think AAA did one that around the same time because I remember handing out flyers for our show there where I believe the NWA was involved and they brought in a lot of the luchas and they drew really well. And that was at the Orleans arena, but there was no localized wrestling, right? Like you can't count rushes as localized wrestling. It was like, we used to do the radio show and Ray and rush paid for the second hour. And the second hour we would do live wrestling matches from the school <laughs> and we would basically commentate it over the radio. And I remember, uh, because he lived in town and he used to come down whenever he was around Rico Constantino. Yeah. And Rico would come on and he'd get on the commentary with us and he was super cool. And, you know, we, we were just trying to, you know, get the word out. But it was like you couldn't charge. So we had to do free shows. And, you know, and they were fun and being a part of it and stuff like that. But it wasn't running a company with day to day and trying to have to figure out how to get people to pay 15, 20, 30 dollars. Right. To come watch people that they've never heard of. So what was the biggest obstacle when you started realizing this is going to be something that can be successful? What did you feel was the biggest obstacle in getting to the next level where you can have a sustainable um company that can run shows on a you know monthly basis or bi-monthly basis well you got to understand when we when we started just breaking even was a goal like hey if we could break even on the shows because at this point we didn't have the school the school came across probably another eight months later okay so we were just running a show every six weeks to two months so we probably ran three four shows then we started the school. We're looking for a place. We put the ring in my backyard. We started getting some, you know, some trainees. We'd go to a WWF show, hand out flyers. We'd find a couple of more students, you know, and then we found a place and we got a great deal. It was on Boulder Highway. It was 4,500 square feet and they only charged us 1,500 bucks a month. It was like, great. Wow. That was a one year lease. And then the next month, the next year was another 500 and the next year was another 500. But it was like a slumlord, like. The place was falling apart. They didn't clean anything. There was no air conditioning, swamp coolers in the uh, in the building, which we didn't know. We had to pay for them ourselves. Oh. And then having the school generated another facility to run shows because we've got to pay money right. to run at these at at Silver Nugget. And then now we're paying rent. So having the school. And then we had like Eugene for the first big show. Aries was in town driving through. I remember he worked for a hundred bucks. He just was trying to get some money to get back to Minnesota. He was ready to quit wrestling. Uh, he was working for Marquez with NWA and hits me up. I'm like, bro, I can't really do much. I'm like, Hey, but we can do a seminar. So he ended up making pretty good money because yeah. we did the seminar and it was new and everybody did the seminar and he was a pretty sour seminar. It was kind of like, you know, this business sucks. Uh, you know, if you could do anything else, do it. Because he was pretty bitter at that point. Yeah. And, you know, and we started doing these shows at the school. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, costs were low because you're paying 
students. You're not really paying the students. You know, you're paying 150 bucks to train at my school. And now I'm going to put you on a show. I'm not going to pay you to. You're right. trying to get the experience. We're trying to get you good enough to where you can now go out and make paydays. And, you know, that's always been my M.O., you know, all these out of town guys, the, the Brian Cages, the scum, you know, they all put me over as, you know, a great place to work. And it isn't a great place to work because I pay better than everybody. It's like I'm upfront. I'm honest. Hey, this is what I can afford to pay you. This is what we got to do. This is what I'm looking to do with you. So they respected the honesty. And then the reputation grew to where FSW was a place where a lot of people now want to work because we did have such good talent. We had Kenny King. We had Disco Inferno. We had Eli Drake. We had, you know, Brian Cage. We had the scum. You know, these were all people. And, and, and it's continued throughout the years. There's so many guys besides the homegrown guys like a Kevin Cross and a Chris Bay, but guys that we've started with that were babies in the industry. Hammerstone, you know, he yeah. was barely a year in, but saw something there. Douglas James, yeah. you know, we got Damian Drake and AAA, Matt Vandergriff. All these guys have come through the door and some we've trained. Most we haven't, but they were guys that I can use anybody from Arizona California, Utah, they all want to work. But the guys that you've seen, like when you talk about local guys, Hammerstone and Graves are local to me because they've been with me for seven years. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the great thing. A guy like Hammerstone who's made it in this business still works for a rate that I'd be embarrassed to tell somebody that I pay this guy because I know he's doing it as a favor to me because he appreciates the opportunities I gave him. Right. Would you say that, um, given the fact that you focused on basically starting shows that gave a little bit of opportunity to younger talent, also had experienced workers, would that be the difference in drawing, let's say, you know, 20 people as to 200 people is that you have guys who actually know how to work and have, you know, even if they don't have a name yet, you're going to, let's say, see Disco on the card at, you know, the main event, but you get to see someone like a Hammerstone early on, you realize that all these matches are solid. They're good. Is that some of the key to success of, having a good wrestling business is that the people who are in the ring actually are good workers as compared to the local VFW hall shows, you know, sometimes where you have someone who's 63 years old and just a name and then a bunch of guys who, you know, just graduated high school and think that they're superstars. Well, see, the way I looked at it was, I remember because, you know, I lived it. I was the guy who put up the flyer and handed him out, yeah. whatever it was. I remember going to Sam's Town one day after a WWE pay-per-view. Back in those days, they'd have six, 700 people yeah. going to watch the pay-per-views there. And I'd go out and I'd hand out flyers for our local events. And a good amount of people would just look at them, shake their head, or take them and throw them on the floor. Yep. And the fact of the matter is, 
I would put my show up with anything those guys have seen that if I can get you in the door once, I believe I can make a fan of you. Yeah. But getting you in once is the difficult process. Can I just give away free tickets? No, I can't really do that. But what I can do is bring in a Godfather, a Matt Hardy, whatever it was. A guy like Matt Hardy really helped explode FSW in 2014. You know, we were doing a show in Mesquite. They were paying for everything. We had done one before. They paid for Kevin Nash and London and Kendrick and the and John Morrison. And so we had a track record there. So they did another one. Matt Hardy became one of the easiest guys to deal with. Loved working with him. Came to Vegas instead of Mesquite. He drew really well. But the thing was, the guys that are on the card, like when Matt Hardy wrestled Bryce Harrison, Bryce Harrison was an excellent wrestler and nobody really knew him. FSW fans did. So what happens is now when you see a flyer and Matt Hardy's on it and John Morrison's on it, it gives a little bit more respectability to the company because no matter how good Kevin Cross and Hammerstone and all these guys look, they don't know who they are. Right. Now you can go to a show in Vegas and everybody knows who Greg Romero is. Right. And Greg Romero doesn't wrestle anywhere outside of Vegas, really. You know, Funny Bone has been around forever. And he was around before there was really wrestling. Like he was involved with Rush back in the day, but he spent 10 years having to go to California and wrestle because that was the only opportunity because there was nothing here. But now, if you look at our roster, all these guys are Las Vegas wrestling stars because of FSW. Yeah. You know, there's a who's who of people that have come through the door. You know, Chris Bay, people now say, hey, I knew Chris Bay when he was, you know, working his first match when Funny Bone beat his ass, you know, and it's like you, they've grown up with these guys. And that's the reason why it's funny. And it's you also got to explain to these guys that. They all feel how over they are. Oh, man, but listen to the crowd. And it's like, yeah, but you need to be that way elsewhere. Our fans are going to cheer you even if you're mediocre. And believe me, there's guys who've had shit matches or guys that think they're way better than they are because, oh, that was a great match. Hey, that was a great match. I've never heard a fan tell somebody, oh, man, I like you, but you suck tonight. (laughs) They, They don't say that. Unfortunately, a lot of people only want to hear the good stuff. And right. if you hear the bad stuff, they block it out or he liked the other guy better or whatever it is. You know, we're trying to be truthful, you know, in the situation. So now, just like Kevin Cross, everybody feels that they were there from his start. Right. Like if you go on Facebook, you know, people are so excited that he's in NXT now that they follow everything he does because he was so good to the fans when he was coming up and right. we knew he was special, but we didn't know how special we, you know, I knew Sean Ricker was going to be a big deal at one point. I knew Brian cage had a good chance yeah. to be a star. You know, the young bucks, when we brought him back, it was like, now they got bigger than they were, but a lot of these fans could be like, man, I seen these guys when they were barely a year or two into the business. Yeah. And, The problem we have now is we have too many guys. (laughs) It's like if you look at our school, there's so much younger talent 
you know, you got the sky highs yep. that all of a sudden they've really. You know, but where do they go in our tag division? We got, you know, the bonus boys. Now we got, you know, Damian Drake and Matt Vandergrift, the unguided. And we got, you know, Cody and, and Jake Boston Young and Lights Camera Faction. And, and there's so many teams that it's hard for me to call up two of my favorite people in the business, Tito Escondido and Che Cabrera, yeah. just because it's hard to get spots because for the out-of-town guys, they're busy, they're doing stuff, so they can't commit so many dates to us Right. that where do you fit some of these guys? There's a lot that, you know, that's a lot of the reason why you don't see, you know, some of these guys that we bring in like, hey, man, I can't believe it, you know, Tito and Che are awesome. And it's like, yeah, but how many matches could we have? We have too many to begin with. Yeah. So it becomes hard when a guy like Danny Limelight, who's really good and wants to work on the show, and it took him a long time. And we got him in at one of the Rumbles, and then the next two times he got hurt. So it's hard. Now he's going to kind of cycle through. I can't just find a spot for him when he's healthy now because he wasn't able to make it. Right. Now, it's not his fault, but I also got to make sure – Despite the fact that, say, a Danny Limelight is way better than, you know, one of our younger kids, uh, an Adriel, for example. Well, right. Adriel's come through our system. He's improved a thousand percent. Yep. He's paying to be there and he's earned himself a spot. I can't really bring in somebody from out of town to fill a spot that I can have filled, which, again, A, saves us money to where right. we can make some. But how long are people going to keep coming to your school or paying? It's like, wow, I'm getting so much better. But Joe keeps bringing in these guys from California that probably are just as good as me. Right. So we run three types of shows. I think that's what the difficult part is with us. Like you see certain companies, a Russell Circus became a big deal because they run these super shows. Yeah, well, we run that show. It's called the Mecca. But right. then we have our regular shows that have the Hammerstones and Douglas James's and Graves and Chris Bays and Kenny Kings. And then we have the student shows where the Suavecitos are making some waves and they want to be on every show. And so does Sky High and, you know, Macho Mouse and <laughs> Shaggy McLovin, you know, who's improved immensely. Yeah. But how many guys, the No Limits division with Kyle Hawk, who's stepped up you, Joe and Travers. Yep. You know, Ice Williams, you got Remy, you know, Jarrell lost his partner to the NWA, Royce Isaacs, 1%. Were, I put together, you know, they always, they they were two guys that barely knew each other. I, yep. I had the concept, the idea, 1%. And the fact of the matter is, yes, I put them together. And yes, they were usually successful, but they were usually successful because they worked together and made themselves a great tag team. Right. I put people together that I thought could work, but they didn't really want to be a tag team. Jarrell and Royce wanted to be stars in FSW. So they did what was necessary to get there. They didn't care if it was, and it ended up blowing up for them where they ended up wrestling SCU and they're wrestling yeah. all the best tag teams on the West coast and probably were the best tag team, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the West Coast last the year before, yep. you know, so it's trying to find those needles in the haystack, you know, and it's like you're watching these guys, you know, never had a women's division. Well, Lacey Ryan fell in our lap yeah. and she's one of the best workers there is, 
You know, she had a great match with Tessa Blanchard. She had a great match with Jordan Grace at Impact. You know, she's going to be somebody who is going to be signed to one of the major companies. And then we got Maserati, who gets to be on Ring of Honor. She's really made, you know, she's probably been one of the most improved wrestlers we've had. You know, and then Cassandra, Sandra Moon. You know, she was she's on her way, but she's only 18 years old. Does she have a ways to go? Absolutely. But she's only 18 years old and she's gotten pretty far pretty quick. Yep. You know, and our list of guys, you know, anybody could say, hey, what about Nino Black? And it's like, yeah, trying to find a spot, you know, and and you name, you know, I try to explain to people there's only eight or nine wins on a show. Yeah, exactly. So it's like. Well, man, you do you, what do you, you really like those four ways. No, but I'm not going to leave Kyle Hawk and Owen Travers off the card just so I could put on Shaggy and Ice. Right. They all four deserve to be on the card. You know, who, you know, and I've always been, as Kenny King always says, too nice <laughs> that, you know, despite certain issues, I try to get as many people as I can. I'll add a, you know, the pre-show match. And all of a sudden, hey, there's Joe. He's got an eight-man tag. And it's like, yeah, but I'm trying to make sure Laz, who is coming a long way, gets an opportunity to wrestle. You know, you can't get better if you don't get the experience. Well, how are you ready for a casino show if I can't put you on shows? So I have to use those smaller shows and then we get the Bugattis and the Romeros and the Owen Travers who most of the time give back by working the student showcases future shock as we like to call them because they know we're charging 10 bucks to get in we're getting 50 people it's just a way for somebody to work in front of somebody so they understand and they're willing to work for less money to try to help out the younger guys because when Bugatti and Romero were coming up there was guys who did that for them. Right. That makes sense. I mean, what what I like, uh, you know, is the fact that there is a um, a loyalty to getting experience for everyone. Um, when you guys took in the snake pit, did you? also realize that having guys like sin would open up opportunities for some of the students like Maserati to go out to somewhere like OVW and get a chance to start working those shows. Um, you know, was that, you know, something in your mind that, Hey, the more connected people that we have that are, kind of the top tier in training, the more connections that you have personally because you've been around it for such a long time, will allow these students and these younger wrestlers that we're nurturing to get other opportunities. Well, that's been with the main resurgence, I guess. I don't even know if you call it a resurgence. You know, five years ago, it's like, wow, man, we're doing great. It's unbelievable. And three years ago, like, oh, this was our best year ever. And (laughs) Two years ago and last year, but it's based off all the connections that are made. Over time, we made connections with Ring of Honor. They needed a ring. So, and Kenny King worked there. So, the first year, we got him the ring. We rented him the ring. They used our ring crew. And, you know, that was about it. 
The next year, I put him in touch with Sam's Town. They worked out a huge deal at Sam's Town, and they had their own ring, but they use our guardrails. They use our crew. They get some of our guys on there. Then uh, Impact, when Global Force came to town, the, Jared, you know, touched base with Paulie Cover. He knew him from stuff. Uh, talked about the wrestling. They needed a guy. We sent them over. Uh, we gave them a recommendation on Kevin Cross. I became friendly with Sanjay Dutt because he was like Jeff Jarrett's right hand man, and Jeff wasn't going to handle the little, the little stuff. Right. So Sanjay handled the little stuff. And Sanjay and me became pretty friendly, whatever. You know, I get to hang out backstage and, and, and we talk stuff and they're looking for guys. And I remember uh, the second show, for example, they were they needed a tag team. Gallows and Anderson dropped out or whatever. And Sanjay got a thousand tapes and videos of people, but he isn't going to look at them. And I remember Remy Marcel hit me up about it. And I sent Sanjay some stuff on a couple of people. And he looked at the whirlwind gentleman and he was like, oh, these guys, are, these guys are super cool. And they got up to be they got on the show because of the connections that we had. The fact that Remy sent the tape is great, but there's just not enough time for them to look at everybody. Right. Everything is based on recommendations. Who knows who, you know, who's friendly with who. You know, and it's the same thing. Chris Bay, Kevin Cross, Cross signed with Impact because now Sanjay and Jarrett took over. And then when Jarrett was gone, it was Sanjay and Scott D'Amore. And Sanjay was able to push for Kevin Cross to get signed. Yeah. And everything is the connections. You know, with Sin bringing D'Lo on board, you know, Jake wasn't really there that much. He was there and it's great to have him. But he wasn't really there that much. But the fact of the matter is we had Disco, and he wasn't there that often, and Kenny was there. But now you got four guys that have been in the business forever. Yeah. And later on now, D'Lo Brown, he's an agent, talent relations guy at Impact. Well, guess how Chris Bay got signed? Right. Well, they already knew who he was, but now firsthand – they know Chris Bay and Damian Drake's got numerous matches on there and Owen Travers and Hammerstone got signed with MLW because impact passed on him. But Conan saw him because we got him in on that tryout yeah. and then Conan recommended to MLW and he was their fastest rising star of the year. Yeah. So all that stuff is what does that like now when you say with sin, there's good and there's bad. The bad is he brought in a bunch of students, and now we got to try to get them on the show. <laughs> and now it's made it 30 guys we're trying to find the spot for instead of 22. Right. So it's not bad in any other way than it makes it just more difficult. And having his connections, he's been in the business forever. So, like you said, he's buddies with Al Snow. So Maserati got to go work OVW. Uh, the twins, King's Ransom, yeah. you know. They 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 should been F, they should be FSW future tag team champions, but they went to OVW looking as the Al Snow connection to be an easier way to get into WWE. We'd love to have them there. They they'd be right in the middle of everything. Right. And it's like you know you look at the talent base, and you know I always talk about wrestling schools and stuff, and Santino brothers. You know I always put over as besides us. You know 
the Douglas James, the Che Cabrera, the Tito Escondido, yeah. you know, Vinny Wasco. A lot of these guys, they've all come from there. Yep. And they've produced a great amount of talent, you know, and it's no disrespect to other schools, but to me, they've they're right up there with us in, in terms of talent. The difference is Santino has a large, large, much larger base to get students. So per capita, I would have to say FSW school has churned out more wrestlers who are doing things on weekends and they may not have made it to the big time yet, but they're traveling all over every Friday and Saturday and Sunday. We got shit tons. Right. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the um, product of a, a good system. And I think that what you're seeing is with the influx of um, passion for wrestling now, you're, you're seeing more opportunities where, you know, 10 years ago, these kids wouldn't be able to get that opportunity to work weekends. But now you can, you know, still train learn and also make a little cash to at least facilitate the training you know by working a show or two on a you know saturday or sunday right they're not they're not making money going to arizona if they make 30 bucks 40 bucks it's basically covering their gas if they want to get a meal you know yeah but it's the experience yep you know you you probably you know everybody's gonna have a shit match you know we had kenny king wrestle Brian Cage, and it was a shit fest, but they just had a bad match. Right. You know, but it's a lot easier for Kenny King and Brian Cage to the next day have a great match. A kid who's had nine matches, the odds of him having a really good match are very difficult. You know, Chris Bay may have, you know, Kevin Cross, but it's, it's going to be hit or miss if you're going to have a good match or not. So if you now work 60 matches in three months instead of seven, you know, your progression is a lot different than, say, three years ago when you say, hey, I've been doing it for three years and right. you had 40 matches. Guys today, if they, you know, in, in six months, they've had 40 matches. Yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the difference. You know, when you go experience, a lot of people try to say, and I always joke because there's guys, oh, you know, I've been doing this for 14 years. And it's like, yeah, but you took 10 of them off. <laughs> you wrestled for two, you disappeared for 10 years and you came back and then you act like you're a 14 year veteran. You're not, you know, in reality, it's how many matches being in how many years doesn't mean shit. Right. With the, um, having to kind of find a niche, uh, for some of the younger talent and deciding to run shows, uh, from the FSW arena, what does it take you business-wise to put in to, to run those shows as compared to running a big show at Samstown? Well, Mecca, for example, we know what we're looking to do. So we're going to take guys that we have used before, that we like, people that have talked, like Brian Pillman, for example. You know, I met them when they were doing something uh, that AEW weekend the year before. Nice to meet you. Kept, you know, and then he kept in touch. Yeah. And, you know, we knew we were looking to do an eight man tournament. And then with AEW being out in May, we were able to do a back to back Mecca. I didn't want to do a two night tournament that was six months apart. 
like we normally would do in the Mecca. So initially, the Mecca was meant to be a totally different promotion, not affiliated with FSW. I wanted to bring it like the PWG, the Wrestle Circus, and make it that one special event twice a year whenever Ring of Honor's in town. Right. And as we did that, and we brought in some of the best talent in the world and some of the best shows, Keith Lee and Brian Cage and Sammy Callahan stole that weekend, and that was Ring of Honor weekend. That was a great show. Yeah. And people were like, oh, my God, this guy's fantastic. But then, but we used a couple of guys. And then it was like we learned when I had Hammerstone, and I'm like, you know what? I want to give him the opportunity. I'm, I, and I felt him and Sammy Callahan would be a good match. And despite some of the superstar matchups, that was one of my favorite matches on the show. And it proved to me that Hammerstone was as good as they were. They just had a bigger outlet right. to show off their skills. Hammerstone was just under the radar to certain people. And when we did Doug and TJ, it's like, you know, it's night and day how Doug has progressed from when he first started with us, even like personality, character, charisma. Now we were able to take the Mecca and it's like, okay, who's going to be in the tournament? Who are we looking for? Hey, I'm looking for Brian Cage. Oh, Cage is hurt. Can't use him. Okay. Well, we got the Chris Bays and we, you know, seem to get along real well with Michael Elgin. He likes coming out here. Yeah. Uh, so he ended up becoming a guy. Tom Lawler's local. Willie Mack, he's loved. And <laughs> like for this Mecca, we try to keep it a little bit more localized just because budgets are crazy, crazy high. Right. And the best way to offset that is giving the Ice Williams and the Chris Bays and, our, and the Hammerstones and the Sephifatus, the younger guys, because those guys are going to be at that level and they might be better than some of those guys. Right. And they get that opportunity. Now, we decided at the last minute, like the unguided with uh, Damian Drake and Matt Vandegrift, there was really no spot for them because of the tag. We had Kenny and Shogun, so we had them work the bonus boys. Well, besides being really good wrestlers, they're very helpful at the school. They're, they're a major part of what FSW is. So even though there wasn't a match on the main card, I felt it was necessary to give them an opportunity to perform in front of a, a little bit different type crowd. Because, right. you know, we have our regular FSW crowd, and then we have our Mecca crowd, which is generally Ring of Honor fans. And there may have been less because everything went down and Ring of Honor canceled. But there was a lot of people that were in town that weekend because Ring of Honor didn't cancel to the day before. Right. So they deserve that spot. So now I had to give another tag team a spot to wrestle the unguided. And since Sky High have done really, really well, you know, I remember trying to first start them up and they worked the bonus boys and it was the shits yeah. and they looked terrible. But <laughs> they, they looked at that match. They knew it was the shits and they worked harder. And now they put themselves in a position where now they can say, hey, I got to work the Mecca show. Yeah. So. It's giving opportunity, but also showing people that are deserving of it because, you know what, there's so many guys that are almost equal with each other. And then you have to decide who's going to get that spot over the other guy. With um, the Mecca that you were just referring to, 
it became uh, almost the lightning rod of controversy because essentially you were the last live wrestling show in front of an audience in the country before everything was shut down. Yes. Yes. And you got, you got a lot of shit for that. What was your thinking on it? And how do you feel that everything came together and came off? Well, number one, I didn't get a lot of shit for it. 95% of the people that were involved were excited that we did the show. Right. They wanted to do the show. And what I stated was there's 200 shows going on in Vegas that weekend. Why would I cancel? Right. You know, Jay Lethal came into town because, you know, he got his email late. He was in town with his girl and he hit me up like, hey, can you get me tickets to Santana? And he went to MJ Live and saw Santana Jackson and there was a whole bunch of people there. Now, if everything in this town closed show-wise, then I would feel uncomfortable running. Right. But because other wrestling shows in other states closed, what reason did I have to? You know, we try to take the precautions. You know, nobody was shaking hands. Most of the wrestlers were because they don't care. Right. You know, and it's like at that point on March 15th, there was a lot less going on. Nobody expected the world to stop. You know, it all happened that earlier that week on that Wednesday when the NBA decided they were going to cancel. And then Thursday, somebody, uh, the NHL decided to cancel. And then Ring of Honor decided to cancel. And, you know, people in the minority are the loudest. You know, our fans didn't have to go on Facebook and be like, Oh, please, Joe, can you still please run the show? Right. No, it became from the people who didn't think I should run the show. Exactly. Yeah. Telling me what I should do. Now, if you want to stay home and you don't want to go out because you're afraid of catching it, that's great. We weren't even in that situation of a stay-at-home order. Right. So we chose to run. You know, I was at the, uh, what was it, the the Toy-Con. Right. Where we ran the show on Friday, had a good crowd there. There was a huge line for Rey Mysterio on that Saturday. And it's like all this stuff is going on. There's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't run because one of my wrestlers didn't like it (laughs) and, you know, calls me a piece of shit because I chose to do what I wanted to do. And yeah, all you guys don't need to work. Like I didn't put a gun to anybody's head. Right. Kenny King wanted to work. TJ Perkins wanted to work. Right. Austin Aries wanted to be there. All those guys wanted to be there. Believe me, Matt Hardy wanted to be there. Right. Yep. Didn't want to get stuck in Las Vegas with everything going on. Cause he knew he was going to be at AEW two days later that he had to drive from North Carolina. So, we understood, and anybody who didn't want to be there, that's fine. Douglas James got hurt two days before. That's right. why he didn't make the show. He got concussed in Mexico working the show on Friday with Brian Pillman Jr., who got sick there and just didn't want to jeopardize it. They told you, if you don't feel good, don't come. Right. So then when he didn't come, people were saying, oh, I thought it's a, I thought it's a farce. Uh, I thought this is a hoax. But you're not going to the show. So it's like you're you're guilting people 
you're bullying people into trying to do what you want them to do. Right. Everybody has free choice, as witnessed by the crowd. Did we have people who did not want to take a chance and go to the show? If I was Ticketmaster, I would have been able to keep all the money. Right. Because the show went on. But anybody who bought tickets through us, because I always try to save them the money and buy it through us and save them that outrageous Ticketmaster fee, now hit me up and like, you know, we were coming in for Ring of Honor and we can't make it. So it wasn't even just the case of not being or being afraid to come. It was like now they canceled their trip to Vegas. Right. And I said, no problem. Here's your money back. And we packed that place. And that was still with 50 people, maybe 60 people that wanted their money back. You know, that cost us money. You know, you know, oh, he's just running because he don't want to give up the money. And it's like, bro, we didn't really make any money. I wasn't doing it for money because the profit margin on Mecca shows are not very big. Right. So (laughs) we did it out of my feeling. If everybody hit me up and says, we're not coming to the show and I'm not working the show, then I guess I would have had to cancel it. With the comments, um, that were made in terms of um, the the opinions of um, Suede. What what do you do in that situation? In terms of do you just kind of let that just kind of blow off as hey this you know that's his opinions and that's what he feels, but you know I'm still this is my company I'm going to do what I think is best for the fans and you know for the wrestlers um and does something like that carry into you know making things personal instead of just realizing it's business because it was made personal yeah any fucking promoter who chooses to run is just a piece of shit well when somebody says, well, I didn't say your name at all. Well, you have to be a, a moron to not know who you're talking about. I'm the one running the show. Oh, man. I'm the only one running a show. Who else are you talking about? Now, if your opinion is you don't think I should run the show, that's fine. But to be personal about it, it's my company. I chose to do it. You disagree with it. Great. You move on. Yeah. But he's had other opinions on other things that have rubbed people the wrong way. And it's like, it's great to have your opinion, but it's your fucking opinion. So if you choose it to be that way, you want to stay home, you want to wear a gas mask, you never go out again. I don't care. That, that's your choice. Right. When we're able to run shows again, if they say, hey... Phase one is now open. You can't have anything with more than 50 people at an event. Okay, I'm going to run an event that has no more than 50 people wearing masks and being six feet apart unless you're family and you're together. Right. Why can I do that at Costco, Walmart, Smith's, but I can't (laughs) do that at my place of business? Yep. You know, hey, it's safe. It's safe if you wear a mask and you're six feet away. Okay, I'm going to be (laughs) wearing a mask and my people are going to be six feet away. Oh, well, you can't do that. Well, why not? You know, I have a business to run. I'm in issues with the uh, landlord right now. And it's like, Hey, 
We have a five-year lease. We have four years left on our lease. Do me a favor. We obviously can't pay rent for April and May. Just put it at the end of the lease. Right. You're still going to get your thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Yet we can't be open. So my property manager calls me today. Oh, we got an offer for you. And the offer is, don't worry about paying rent for three months. But in October, you got to pay it all back. I'm like, I'm going to pay you over $100,000 in rent for four years. Why are you worried about a few thousand dollars? Why can't you just put it at the end of the loan? (laughs) Oh, well, you know, it's a negotiation. I'll bring it back to them. You know, we still need you to pay the cams. Okay, well, if I'm going to pay the cams, which is 25% of my rent for three months, that's what I'm doing for you. Because you're not going to get money from me if I don't have it. Right. What's going to happen is I'm going to say, you know what? Since you won't let me not pay five or $6,000 over a few months, instead of me paying you that $100,000 and then adding that 6000 on the end, I'm going to grab all my shit, and then I'm probably going to contact someplace down the road, and I guarantee you I could probably get the same size spot for half the money because there's going to be a lot of places that can't pay the rent back in three months. Yep. Because now – I have to rely on my students who, how many of them are not working and a $150 to $250 payment is not in the cards for them right now. Exactly. So in October, if I don't pay rent April, May, and June, and then in July, I will reopen again, I'm probably going to open at 40, 50% capacity if I'm lucky it's that much. Right. So that means there's no profit in July and August and September. Hey, but in October, we're going to give it to you interest-free, but once January hits, we're going to charge you 10% a month. Oh, really? So what are you doing for me? Right. You're doing nothing for me. Like, I'm willing to pay you the cams of the money I'm not making <laughs> if you're doing me the favor of just putting the, the lease at the end of the loan because – Having a lease is great, but if you have no money, where are you going to get the money from? You're going to sue me for money I don't have? Right. You're going to spend thousands of dollars to try to get my money that my business is now closed because you didn't want to work with me? So, you know, hopefully everything works out. Santino Brothers is in the same situation. They're closing down because they can't open, and they probably would have had to pay rent. I would assume that's the reason why they're closing down. Yeah. Because they want to make them pay their rent instead of saying, hey, you know what? We understand the situation. Everybody's got bills to pay. I'm pretty sure my landlord has a mortgage on that building. I'm pretty sure that their building is going to do the same thing for them and say, hey, you know what? You have a 10-year mortgage. We're gonna, we're, we'll add the three months that we know nobody's paying. Right. You know, it, it seems like a pretty simple process to me. Same thing with my mortgage. Hey, uh, we don't have to pay for three months, but then... We can foreclose after the fact because you have now 30 days to catch up those three months. Right. With what money would I catch up three months? <laughs> Which is a, a whole confusing story in terms of I don't understand why the government who bailed out the banks doesn't turn around and say, hey, guess what? You basically got off scot-free a decade ago. Now repay the people by shutting down any mortgages where 
it's not has you know it doesn't have to be paid back for for three months in terms of that's it you're you're clear on mortgages that's fine these three months we understand this is unprecedented and we're not going to um you know force you to pay something when nothing is coming in and when our government can't even get out the loans to small businesses to maintain those mortgages well, I couldn't get the money because uh, Ruth Chris decided to take $20 million And uh, I even saw the Lakers got $5 million yeah. that they decided to give back because there was no money for any of the small businesses. Give me 20000 and I'll be great. I'll pay yeah. my rent. Yeah. That's the, that's a very interesting, you know, uh, predicament because you're right. Santino Brothers, um, they're not done, but the fact of the matter is, is that, yeah, the rent is just it's ridiculous to have to be forced to pay rent on something. And they that, said they'll be at a, they'll, they said if they reopen and everything's okay, it will definitely be at a different facility. Yep. So that would mean that they had a disagreement with the current place that they've been in for many years. Yep. It's like, I try to explain to the landlord people. I'm like, we've been there seven years. I have never been late. Yeah. You know, you've gotten your money from me. So this is what I need from you to, to make sure you keep getting my money. You know, it, this has been going on since this all happened in the middle of March. Yeah, which is interesting, too, because of the fact that, like you said, seven years and they know what you are um, facilitating. You know, they know that you are based on people coming to your events and students, students coming to train at the school. It's not like you're a textile factory that can have employees come in, you know, four guys come in and continue to make product and here's your rent. Right, because I've seen a couple of the businesses by my place still open, the T-shirt right. place. I don't even know they could be open, whatever. There's a couple of places across the way I saw it says, we're open. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to be simple, but it's been six weeks since I've made first contact and the, the, I finally got an offer and as I said, it was about paying it back in four months. Yeah. So it's like, why does this have to take, you know, we're hoping that we get to phase one in a few weeks. And then, we, you know, we've discussed ideas of staggering classes, not having more than four or five kids, whatever. And we're hoping it's by May 15th. But with the governor going on now, we have no idea. Right. And it's like. You know, he talks all about this other stuff, but he doesn't say, hey, but those business owners, you know, we're going to take care of you. Right. Never heard that part. It's great about people not getting their money, but he's still getting paid. Yeah. You know, but how am I supposed to pay if they're telling me I have to? If they say I don't have to, then OK, I'll stay home another month. No big deal. Right. And that's you know, I'll play online poker all day. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's, but you know, and that's what is really frustrating about this whole predicament of you want to protect the people, which is, which is great. You know, we want to be healthy, want to be able to be Americans and be out and, you know, be able to have our freedom. At the same time, a lot of those people that you're protecting by this in stay in order are the people who make the economy go. And it's like, you know that we're all just chomping at the bit to get back in and see like a live wrestling show, you know, uh, 
because it's something that we love and we're passionate about and we miss. And you also know the performers want to do that. It's like at some point you got to go, okay, when can we kind of take that leash off a little bit and say, like you were saying, hey, stagger out 50 people, no more. You know, if it's a family sit together, if not, you know, you'll have a couple chairs in between you. And then at least you could run at the school because it is in, you know, in this regard, it's an essential business, man. It's entertainment. It's something that we need and we need to be able to take those steps of feeling comfortable to go out again and sit around people and be around people. And the best way to do it is through entertainment because that keeps your mind. Once the show's going, I'm not thinking about is the guy next to me coughing and sneezing. I'm thinking about, holy shit, look at what Joe's putting on. And and the thing is, it's like, and it, it's not about a business about, hey, we're looking to make money. Right. The wrestlers work for less than, in most cases, you know, obviously not the big name guys, but the local wrestler, he's working for half of his daily wage in his normal job. Yep. You know, he's working 20, 30, 40 bucks and usually probably taking his day off from work because he's getting to wrestle on his show because that's what he wants to do. And that's what he's living to do. Like the, the issue with us is, you know, again, sure, we can get some money back from the students that are signing up. But now the money that we bring in from shows are non-existent. Right. You know, that's the reason we run those smaller school shows that helps the profit that helps pay the bills for the school. Yep. And, you know, I lost what is it, three or four concerts I was supposed to go over the next couple of months. <laughs> that, here. that you know, David Lee Roth, Volbeat, whatever. There was like four concerts that have already been postponed and I can't even get my money back from Ticketmaster. Yep. Now they're trying to change the policy, supposedly. It's like, oh, it's postponed. Postpone the win. 2022? Yep. You know, now they're saying that big concerts and big entertainment things, thousands of people... Oh, that's going to be a long, long way away. And it's like, okay, well, then that would mean the casinos would never open because there's right. thousands of people in that. Which is interesting that the casinos, what I found mind-boggling is the casinos didn't shut down until March 18th. Which means that if this virus had been in the United States as they're kind of now figuring somewhere you know late fall maybe you know early in the year in january what's remarkable is casinos are the petri dish for an environment of a virus and yet you didn't hear about a single case of anyone having <laughs> coronavirus and that lasted all the way until march 18th you would have figured you would have heard something. Well, yeah, it was to me, it was like, you know, of all the states, Las Vegas would be hit the worst because people from all over the world, not even all over the United States, right. come to Las Vegas for vacations. Yet we are in like the lower tier of cases that were there. Right. So, you know, again, what's the difference between now and three weeks ago? And exactly. now and six weeks ago, all we're doing is hearing, OK, 142 people contracted it. Oh, 63 people contracted it. 
nothing nothing has changed yet they're saying okay we're going to reopen the we're going to reopen the, the country and it's like but nothing's changed from 4 weeks ago so right. if the country's okay to be open tomorrow it was probably okay to be open 3 weeks ago right. if we're supposedly doing it, it's so contradictory you know you need to follow social distancing you need to wear your mask you need to do this okay so now can i go out oh no you need to stay in the house yeah yeah and it's like if if you're older if you have a bad immune system, I have diabetes and heart disease, and I'm not going to stay in my house forever if they open it up and they tell us to wear a mask. I hate wearing a mask. My wife's like, you need to wear your mask. And I'm like, okay, I'll wear the mask. I don't want to, but I do. And it's like I, you know, sanitize my hands every 17 minutes. And it's yeah. like, but if that's what supposedly helps you – and not contracting it, but then they say, oh, well, you know, 60% of the people are going to get it anyway. Okay, then let me get it now and get it over with. Yeah. You know, th th there's no scientific evidence either way that anything we're doing makes it better or makes it worse. We're just doing it because they think it might. Right. Right. And that's why I understand that people go out to the beaches now when they can, and they don't really give a shit about not being near somebody right you know when 99 percent of the people who do get it it's very mild to where now they're seeing bigger cases of people who had it that never knew it and they took the antibody test oh it wasn't twelve thousand people who had it and 40 died now it's twenty five thousand people had it and 40 died yeah yeah it's you know it's that when you are living in fear of something, then there are no right answers other than, you know, let's, let's face it. You just said diabetes and, and, uh, heart condition. Well, with that, you're already living with that risk every day. So are you, are you really that much afraid? And yeah, you'll take the precautions, which is fine. Precautions are always fine. But I know I've been out um, in terms of uh, delivering food for people. And something I realized the other day is, oh, shit, it's about 95 degrees outside. And I'm wearing these gloves and this mask. People ain't going to be doing that in 115. <laughs> you know? So even that is going to people are just not going to end up doing it. It's too fucking hot here during the summer period. So even if it, you know, if they tell you, no, no, keep doing this through the summer, it's not going to happen because at some point people are just going to be like, listen, I got to live. Well, yeah, even that situation with you, like my kid, he gets, you know, Uber Eats delivered pretty much every day. Yeah. Well, Who's to say you don't have it, the delivery driver? Who's to say yep. the person who uh, decided to cook it didn't have, didn't it. have it? They're not yep. going to know until after the fact. And it's like if you worry about every single little thing, well, well do it yourself. Well, I'm not going to grow my own lettuce. So if I go to the store, somebody had to package the lettuce. Right. And it's like then you have to worry about every single thing. It's like we just – you know, we were talking about, hey, well, let's do an empty arena show. And it's like, but they, they, they're so horrible. It's like, hey, it's a way to raise some money for the guys and, and a lot of our fans because our fans are great. You know, they're always willing to support. 
and send 20 bucks and 10 bucks and hey, I, I did a message on the fan page like, hey, if we're able to do anything, you know, we would do 50 people, invited guests, like our, our main best customers who come to almost every show. Yeah. And plenty said I'd be there. And there was plenty of be like, oh, if you have it live on Twitch, you know, we'll send some money to help support for the guys. And it's like, that's awesome. But the way I am, I'm kind of like, yeah, fuck you. I'll run a show anyway. But it's like, you know what? I don't want to put other people at risk and do it, even though I think it's okay to do, like, especially an empty arena show. Right. Why couldn't we do it? But it's like, let's get this over with and let's get going. It's like, you know, we had our anniversary show set for June 19th. I was thinking we had a good chance of doing that. Now I think that's impossible. Yeah. You know, we've already, you know, the May stuff, everything's canceled, obviously. That was going to be possibly the biggest show we've ever had. Yep. You know, we were going to work with Sammy Callahan and, and Revolver on AEW weekend where thousands of people have bought tickets to be there already. We were going to be there on the Friday with their show on the Saturday. We were talking about doing like a, a lethal lottery show on the Sunday with Sammy's crew because Zachary Wentz was getting married on that Thursday. <laughs> so they were already in town. So it was the perfect fit. Now, that perfect storm ain't going to happen again. We would be able to save money on the flights and, and all the other stuff because people would be here. So now everything we do in May is canceled. Now yeah. it looks like our anniversary is going to get pushed back. Are we going to be able to run Sam's Town? Or are we going to have to run a 100-seater for our anniversary show in July because the limit's 100? Right. And it's like, you know, where does it, where does it end? How does... Um... How does that work with uh, someone like uh, Samstown, where you had these dates scheduled? Um, is there anything that is like in a contract that you know basically, if something like this happens, there's no charges, nothing like no, that? No, no, there's no charges. Everything's yeah. canceled. It was like I got a call a few weeks back when everybody thought you know May first. I thought more like May 15th that things were going to open up again. And uh, Jason from Samstown, who we deal with all the time, called me to let me know that even though they planned on being open, uh, Samstown Live would not be open for events that would have guests. Okay. So I would think that would be every every event because even if they're having a Kinsiera, it's guests. <laughs> so they basically wouldn't be opening the Samstown Live throughout till may 31st and like i said i'm pretty much assuming that the june 19th date we were supposed to be this this past weekend we were we were making our return to the north side cannery yeah. for a show and it's like you know we're just sitting here chomping at the bit you know the wrestlers want to wrestle they they wanted the fans want to go out and it's like you know i'm sitting here talking about, hey, where are we going with storylines? Where are we going with events? We had started some storylines, you know, in March. Now it's going to be May or June before we do anything, you know. Who remembers that Kyle Hawk and Hero Lou were feuding? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like almost everything has to be restart from scratch and figure out where we're going and who's available, you know, who may be concerned about, actually wrestling you know 
because they're afraid of contracting it because in the last two, three months, they've put the fear in a lot of people. Right. And it's like, hey, do we come back? And when we do do the small school show, do we do like five or six matches, keep it short, 90 minutes in, out? You know, there there's so many things being that because there's so much time. Like, hey, what are we doing next? You know, my son's right to be like, hey, what about this? It's like, dude, ooh. We don't even know if we're doing anything for two months. It's kind of hard. Like we we're, you know, looking at taking the facility and upgrading it and and restructuring the lights and make it look more, you know, studio sound that, you know, the footage looks top grade right. at the arena as well as at Samstown. It's easier, hey, if WWE wants some killer cross footage. You know, if it's right. shitty cameras and it, the lighting's not very good, they're not going to be interested in it. And so we're trying to upgrade everything. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, it's going to cost this much. Okay, that's fine. We're good. Oh, wait, now we can't do it because we can't, you know, we can't throw a few thousand dollars into that when we're still wondering what's going on with the rent or going on if we're going to be there or they're going to force us out. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a, a very upsetting situation when I, you know, start thinking about all that. It's just like, it's crazy. And the nice thing is that you're still focused, you're still passionate. Um, and I think that the future, once everything gets backed open, uh, looks like, I think coming out of the gate that you'll be one of the first examples of how to get things back on its feet. Do you feel that you'll be in a position to be ready and to take those building blocks slowly as you see them necessary and will this be a time potentially because of availability and like you were saying, people maybe not wanting to come in contact for a little bit that some of the other talent who is chomping at the bit might be ready to step in and you just might have like even more of a roster problem because now everyone's ready to go. Yeah. You know, the thing is, it's like contemplating ideas and as much as, a Hammerstone and Graves from Arizona and Jarrell Nelson and Douglas James out of California. It's like, hey, maybe those first couple shows, we don't make those guys have to make a five-hour drive from another state. Right. You, you know what I mean? It's like those are the things that you have to think about in there to try to keep it as safe as possible. You know, is it good for them to be exposed over here? I'm pretty sure if things are opened up a little bit, they're not going to care. They're going to be like, I'm ready. Let's go. Yeah. You know, but it's just like the thought of it is like, okay, since we're going to do five or six matches, problem is a guy like Douglas and a guy like Graves, they're our champions. So we're going to reopen up, but not have our champions on the show. You you know what I mean? So it's like, it's like, it's such a juggling process of what you want to do. We were the last show and we eventually knew we were going to be the last show and there was nothing nobody was going to do about it unless they shut us down. My, my, my buddy Jeff, who runs Tough Enough, he was trying to be the last MMA show. He didn't care. 
the commission shut him down. There was nothing he can do about it. He was extremely disappointed. Yeah. You know, he was happy we were able to run. I was happy we were able to run. We were the last show. And when the opportunity rises, I'm pretty sure we're going to be the first show. Yeah. Because if they say it's okay, then there's no reason to continue waiting. You know, we've waited long enough. You know, it's going to be a minimum of two months. And if nothing's changed in two months, then I don't know how it's going to change in five months. So it's like, let's go. Let's get it going. And, you know, we got a lot of great talent, man. We, We were having the biggest year FSW had ever had. You know, we... We had Netflix in there. They were filming a documentary-style thing with uh, one of our students. You know, we worked with Ring of Honor. We worked with Impact. They're scheduled to come back again in September. You know, we run the ring crew for them. We do a lot of work with uh, with Impact. Our boy Chris Bays, you know, <laughs> hopefully the X Division champion by them. Our other guy, Willie Mack, is. Yep. So it's like there's so much going on. You know, Ring of Honor comes back. You know, and AEW, you know, yeah, they're coming back next May. Well, hopefully they'll come back for a TV. We were talking since they were doing, you know, from May when they were going to come in on the Saturday for the show. And Wednesday, we were talking to Billy Gunn about doing seminars. Yeah. We were talking about Dustin Rhodes. You know, they're all going to be here. So it's like they all know each other. You know, Sin and, and D'Lo and Kenny know all these guys. And it was going to be a great way for our students to get even more knowledge and being a part. When AEW was here last time, a lot of people don't know because they were under masks. Well, 15 of our guys were working that show and being part of the crew. And, you know, Damian Drake uh, got to be, you know, the young Jericho or something (laughs) when they were doing that. And they had the dark order segment where all our guys were there. So they got the experience you know, WWE, yeah, they might use a guy or two here and there, but AEW used, you know, half our crew. Right. And got to be working on an, a, a, not even a national pay-per-view, an int, you know, a yeah, worldwide, worldwide pay-per-view. Yep. And getting the experience. Like, it's the same thing with the Ring of Honor and Impact. Every time these guys get that opportunity, get them a little smarter, they can ask questions. And, you know, we always talk about the school, and it's like, the reason why the school is so successful is not just because we have good trainers. It's because all the best guys in Las Vegas all train at our place. Right. So any given day, any of these younger guys are going to be working with somebody who's worked somewhere else. And you can't get better working a guy who's inferior to you or has three months in just like you. You know, there's so much veteran presence in you know in our building on any given day which translates because the the students learn from the actions of the veterans and you can tell that they respect the business and that you if you walked in and you saw someone who'd been wrestling for 10 years and someone who'd been wrestling for 10 months you would see no difference between the respect given by both of them. And I think that's remarkable that they're being taught the right way. So if they go and do a show in Maine, when they get in the dressing room, 
it would be the same as if they were walking into the dressing room at FSW before a show. The respect is there, and that is just wonderful to see how the um, the building of the the um, personalities and the the um, the discipline of the wrestlers. It's it's just a great thing because that's what takes you from being some guy who thinks they're a professional wrestler to a person who is a professional wrestler. Well, that's always been one of my pet peeves. You know, people go on Facebook and they're professional wrestlers. No, they're not. You know, they're, they're, they're trainers, trainees, you know, who work at a local department store. Yeah. And it's like, you're not a professional wrestler unless you're like Chris Bay, who is now being paid to be a wrestler. Yeah. You know, Kevin Cross has made it. You know, there's some of these guys that, you know, they get the, oh, yeah, I work. That's great. You work a full-time job and you work two wrestling shows a week doesn't make you a professional wrestler. And, you know, usually it's the guys that don't even get booked twice a week. It's the guys that aren't even good at all that right. like to talk about how, oh, yeah, I'm a wrestler. I'm a wrestler. It's like, yeah, sure you are. Much of a wrestler as me. <laughs> well, on that note, we're going to wrap up here today. Um, next week, what I'd like to talk about is a little bit of the history of the FSW championship and talk about some of the guys who have held it over the years and get a little, um, inside scoop on, you know, how it was working with some of these guys, how they came along and why they earned that position. Um, I like to say the FSW championship is uh, the stepping stone to greatness. You know, we're looking over the lineage of the last few years. But we'll talk about that next week. Absolutely. And I appreciate your time, Joe. Listeners, I hope you had a good, nice, uh, long hour and a half listen here because this is fascinating stuff to me. This is interesting. And there's nobody better than Joe DeFalco because the DeFalco files will always mean that the truth is here and it will be here every Tuesday until the uh, until I get tired of talking yeah until the either repeating questions yeah or you know the governor says we can't do podcasts anymore so well, you know that's not, it's not essential so it's, yeah you know. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you guys next week.